0: Well, if you would, grab a Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 21, Luke chapter 21. This summer, this was a passage that encouraged me and challenged me, and so I thought this is one that we should look at and be encouraged and challenged together. So that's why we're here in Luke 21 this morning. This morning, we're going to pick up in verses 25 through 36. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Lord, we pray that you would now give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Father, we pray that you would do what only you can do. God, we pray that you would save, that you would convince, that you would convict. Lord, we pray that you would allow me to faithfully preach. We pray that you would show us Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when you go on a trip, especially with kids, everyone wants to know, where are we going? What are we going to do when we get there? They might say, why are we going there? But how long is it going to take is probably the most important question. Might even ask, how are we going to get there? Now, if it's a long trip, the trials grow while on the journey. Uh, People, no doubt, have to go to the bathroom. Uh, People begin to get tired of the company that they have sitting close to them. So some begin to fight. Some are sitting too close to others. Some begin to lose heart. Maybe it's you as you're driving with all of that going on. Some start asking, can we stop? And then when you stop... You might stop at a welcome center that has brochures. And when you see those brochures, your kids come back and they start to say, can we stop at this place? Can we go here? What about this place? I've never been here. And you're saying to them, guys, we're headed somewhere. We're on a trip. We're going to be there soon. Just get back in the car. Leave the brochures. Can we go play mini golf and then get back in the car? Well, in a way... That's a story of discipleship. In Luke 21 25 through 36, Jesus is telling us that only the disciples who stay awake while he's gone will make it to the end. So his word to us in this passage is stay awake so you're ready. Stay awake so you're ready. Two, two things stand out in this as application that Jesus uses to drive that point home to us. The first one is, we should lift up your head when the world is falling apart. Lift up your head when the world is falling apart. That's verses 25 to 33. So if you take notes, that's the first heading that you could write down. Lift up your head when the world is falling apart. But the second thing, the th- the, the, where the passage ends for us He tells us, don't get distracted. Don't get distracted. That's verses 25 or 34 to 36. Verses 34 to 36. Listen, Jesus is leaving the disciples, but they won't be alone. They will have trials, but they must endure. Jesus will return, but it won't be immediately. The world will have tribulation. But we must not waver. He will seem delayed. But he is coming soon. Signs will point to his coming. And we must see them and respond. Let's look at our text beginning in verse 25. Then there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. And there will be anguish on the earth among nations bewildered, By the roaring of the sea and the waves, people will faint from fear and expectation of the things that are coming on the world because the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads because your redemption is near. Lift up your head when the world is falling apart. Okay, we're, we're entering into this text in the middle of Jesus' teaching on, 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 a, on a larger subject of the signs of the end of the time. This is at the end of his life. This is in the last days, perhaps one week or so uh, prior to his crucifixion. This is when his ministry has centered in on Jerusalem. He's now there. He's staying outside of the city at night. And during the day, he's going into the temple. And at the temple, he's sitting down and people are coming. And he's teaching about all these kinds of things. The end of time, the coming of the kingdom, the son of man, who he is, and what is about to take place in his death and in his resurrection. So verse 25 comes to us with a then so we're, we're sort of stepping in to a, a, a narrative that Jesus is saying, and we're picking up at a certain point. So we need to understand kind of where this is. Well, as I said, this comes at the end of his, of his ministry. If you look down at verse 37, you'll see what I was referring to, that during the day he was teaching in the temple. But in the evening, he would go out and spend the night on what is called the Mount of Olives. Then all the people would come early in the morning to hear him in the temple. Now, while they're sitting there, they're in the midst of a temple, Herod's temple, which is a magnificent and very beautiful construction. Herod was known to have rebuilt the temple and restored it. It it, it doesn't have the glory of Solomon's temple, but it's it's a magnificent place and a very beautiful building. If you go today, you can see the remnants of what Herod had constructed and even the foundations that remain are pretty impressive. So you can imagine... That when Jesus is saying these things, people's ears are perking up. And in fact, the temple itself and the mount is the symbol of Judaism. It's the heart of what God had instructed Israel to do and and to how to worship him. It's where the sacrifices took place. It's where three times a year, everyone, particularly all the men of of Israel, needed to come and gather and worship before the Lord as a requirement under the Mosaic Covenant. It's the epicenter But most important is it's the place where God meets with his people on earth. So Jesus is there, and he's in that context, and he's speaking. And this beautiful building surrounds them, which prompts someone uh, to to respond to Jesus when he's doing this. So look at verse 6 in chapter 21. This is part of the context here. Verse 5 says, As some were talking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God. He said, these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left on another that will not be thrown down. Now, in that context, that's, that's pretty startling. It's pretty surprising to hear that. So you can imagine how that would fall on people. Well, just days before, he had also predicted the same thing in chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. And he tells us why that would happen. I think it's helpful for you just to flip over there, if you would, and just see, see what Jesus said there. So just, just two chapters over. Chapter 19, verse 41. As Jesus approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, if you knew this day, what would bring peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, And hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground. And they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed because they did not receive the Messiah. Everything that the Mosaic covenant, everything that the Old Testament had promised and pointed to and led to, that moment has come. And the city that has the temple of God refuses him. The day when God visits, they rejected him. And so they will be judged. Israel's rejection of of Jesus as the Messiah was a turning point in history marked by judgment. And if you're paying attention to your whole Bible, you'll recognize that the judgment that's going to fall is the same one that fell on Israel in 586 B.C., when Nebuchadnezzar was sent by God to judge that generation and the, and the temple of Solomon that Solomon built was leveled to the ground as a judgment. Jerusalem was to be sacked and the temple raised to the ground. Okay, you're sitting there in the temple. Here is Jesus early in the morning and he's teaching and he's saying this. We can imagine the alarm that that would send And so verse 7 of chapter 21 is very natural to hear someone ask him. Teacher, they asked him, so when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? What follows is Jesus' answer. This whole chapter is Jesus' answer to when and what will be the signs. And he gives us basically three phases. So if you if you do take notes, you can write down that there's a plan. <laughs> Jesus, what will be the sign? What will be, what will be the times? How will we know? Well, listen to the plan. Listen to how it's going to happen. So Jesus gives a blueprint, but he doesn't give a detailed time chart. And that's very important to note, especially if you're sort of an end times um, connoisseur. <laughs> if you're someone who likes to Pull, pull out the dates and look at the newspaper and weigh and try to figure out all these things, then your ears usually perk up on something like this. But notice, Jesus doesn't give us that kind of a timeline. There's some details here, some that are very obvious, even now looking back, but there are many that are, that are vague and they're, they're like a shadow. Verse 25, the word then is the third stage in the time that Jesus, in Jesus' answer to his first and second coming. The first one is verses 10 through 19. We're not going to look at that. But this is the time that is basically what you read in the book of Acts. He tells them that before before all these things begin to take place, they're going to arrest you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to bring you before governors and kings and so forth. And that's exactly what you see happen in the book of Acts. But then in verse 20, he gives a very obvious sign. In verse 20 through 24, he tells us about the events that we know took place in 70 AD when Titus marched on Jerusalem and for three weeks he sieged Jerusalem and many, many people died. The events that happened there were described by Jesus that this would happen as part of these events. And you'll notice there in verse 24, That section ends, they will be killed by the sword and led captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So that indicates to us that what would happen after the sack of Jerusalem is that a new phase in God's redemptive history would begin, and that's known as the times of the Gentiles. That's the time we live in now. When the gospel is going to be preached to all the nations, and it will go out from Jerusalem and scatter to the ends of the earth before the second coming of Jesus. That's the time we're in now. When that time ends, we get to verse 25. Verse 25, Then there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars, and there will be anguish on earth among nations, bewildered by the roaring of the sea and the waves. What is the time of Jesus' coming? Jesus' second coming comes after the time of the Gentiles. This is a time for Jerusalem to be trampled, signifying a total end to Moses' covenant, and the time for Gentiles to hear the gospel and come to faith. In Mark's record of this, Jesus is is quoted as saying, it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all the nations. So one of the questions you might ask is, well, what are some of the things that we're waiting on? One of the things we're waiting on is for the full number of those who will be saved among the Gentiles to be brought to salvation. That's what we're waiting on. There is a time and a season, and there is a moment where Jesus will say, it is complete. And at that time, he will come back. This whole time will have signs, though, that will give way to the end of time itself. Cast your eye over at verse 8. In verses 8 through 11, Jesus, when when he launches into his answer, he gives us sort of this big overview. This sort of summary statement that he's going to unpack. Look at what he says. He says, then he said, watch out that you are not deceived. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is near. Don't follow them. When you hear of wars and rebellions, don't be alarmed. Indeed, it is necessary that these things take place first. But then notice this, but the end won't come right away. Then he told them nation will be raised up against nation, kingdom against kingdom, There will be violent earthquakes and famines and plagues in various places. And there will be terrifying sights and great signs from heaven. So Jesus gives us this summary of what to expect in the time while he's gone. You say, Jesus, that's not very encouraging. Well, it may not be. But these are signs. These are signs to us as disciples that the time of of the Gentiles is underway And the time of Jesus' coming is getting near. They are constant reminders of what Jesus says here. So throughout the time, from Jesus' ascension into heaven until his descension at the second coming, all of these things are going to be common to our experience in life. Famines, earthquakes, pestilences, wars, rumors of wars, and so forth. In verses 25 to 26, we see something very big. He says there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. This is a prophetic phrase found throughout the Bible when it's used to describe monumental judgment. So you saw it; we, we saw it earlier when uh, Dan was reading for us Isaiah 13, and there was a. That's one of the many examples of this in the Old Testament where a prophecy is made, and that prophecy is describing total destruction on Babylon. They're not going to continue. Their kingdom is going to end. And someone else is going to reign in their place. So when, when, when the Lord delivers that message, he describes it as the sun going dark, the moon refusing to shine, and sometimes stars are falling. This is apocalyptic language. It's, it's, it's imagery that is meant to capture perhaps the phrase that we use when we say, like, it seems like the sky's falling. When you see this in scripture, he's saying the sky will basically Fall. Monumental judgment happens. So what he's saying is, is that at the time when the, when the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, there will be monumental disruption on the earth, as if the sky is falling on all of us. It can be literal. Think of the plagues of Egypt. Think of the flood when the sky opens up and the floods fill the earth. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding villages of that time when fire and brimstone literally fell from the sky to judge them. You would definitely say that the sky is falling and there are signs in the heavens falling on us. But even in the plagues, you see darkness, you see, you see the sun blotted out, you see monumental events. The whole army of Pharaoh wiped out in one battle. However, it's often metaphorical because of the literal examples. This can be confusing until you realize the interconnectedness of the creation and the creator. Think about all the ways that throughout scripture God calls on the heavens and the earth to bear witness. Or think about when uh, you read early in, in, in Genesis when Cain kills Abel. And God says to him, the blood of your brother cries out from the ground. The earth itself is not alive as though it has a soul, but it is dependent on God. It is completely connected in the sense that it is dependent on God to exist and it serves at his bidding. So whenever you see a description of God showing up, for example, on the earth at Sinai, the earth quakes. The the sky goes dark. Lightning falls because the presence of the creator is close to the creation. So when God comes in the last day, when Jesus shows up, these same events are going to be, be brought about in a cosmic way. So when God describes monumental destruction, he, he often evokes creation language or decreation language, you might say. One author put it this way, the evoking of the created world in the context of the Lord's judgment against his people suggests there's a moral order built into the very structure of creation. Think about how God describes in Israel when they, when they worship idols and they do uh, grotesque things and, and iniquity and they live sinfully. He says that you have polluted my land. Our sin corrupts our location and the earth groans under that. You can hear echoes of Romans 8, where the earth has been subjected, not willingly, but it is subjected in hope. And the earth is groaning until Jesus shows up. Why do we have storms? Why do earthquakes happen? Why do tornadoes take place? Well, in one sense, it's a natural phenomenon. But why does that take place at all, threatening our lives and our livelihood? Because the earth is groaning things are not right. These are signs to us. Now, the point of using this is to depict judgment. In other words, the shaking of human society and human climate is a sign of God's judgment and a precursor to the final events that will take place just before and at his coming. The climax of the signs in verses 8 through 11 and what's here in 25 and 26 occurred just before his second coming. Now, notice the effect that this has on people. Verse 26. Well, first, at the end of 25, it says, There will be anguish on the earth among nations, bewildered by the roaring of the sea and the waves. Verse 26. People will faint from fear and expectation of the things that are coming on the world because the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, if you're following along in your Bible you'll realize that this is similar to Roman or Revelation chapter 6 and the sixth seal that's opened there. Kevin preached through Revelation a few uh, year or two ago now, and you can go back and listen to that series uh, if you want to think more about this. But in Revelation 6, 12 to 17, when the sixth seal is opened up, we read that all people said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of the one who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. At his coming, the powers of the heavens and the earth itself will be shaken in such a way that the terror among people will cause people to cry out to the earth itself to swallow them whole so that they don't have to stand before God. If you're here this morning and you're saying, I don't know what to do with all these kinds of things, know that what Jesus is doing in telling you this Of all places you could be today in the world, you're sitting here and hearing this. Jesus is warning you before it happens. He's warning you so that you wouldn't be in that position that terror would fill you. And you would cry out for the earth to swallow you so that you wouldn't have to look at Jesus. And he's telling you that not because he wants to merely scare you. I think you should be alarmed. There is a sense in which we should be alarmed about that. But he's telling you so that you would turn to him. Jesus says these things as an act of kindness, as a grace and a mercy. You know, if you you really want to get somebody and you know what's coming, you don't say anything about it. You're like, yeah, I can't wait to see this. Here we go. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus tells us what's coming in an act of kindness to warn you to turn to Him. What Jesus is about to do in His life, if you go to this context when He's saying these words, He is just about, in just a few days' time, to go to a cross where He's going to lay His own life down and shed His own blood so that your blood would not be required of you in the judgment, so that you wouldn't have to face God as His enemy receiving the wrath of God, Jesus instead received the wrath of God on himself as a substitute for everybody who turns from their sins, asks for forgiveness and mercy. You will find it. That's his promise. That's why he says this. Jesus was raised from the dead, and that's why he's coming back again. The, the, the Jesus who reigns and lives right now at the right hand of the Father who is coming offers mercy and forgiveness to you Right now, today, if you turn to him, Church, there's a plan that Jesus lays out. And so since there's a plan that he lays out for us, there's a proper response. There's a proper response. This is not here for our fascination as much as it is fascinating. The signs of the age and its end have various reactions. We just read in verse 26 that some will be in terror. And you might say, yeah, of course. But just think about this. Think about our current moment. Current climate talk could be part of this, these, these signs that Jesus is talking about. Now, I don't dismiss that, but it's not yet certain. I don't think we, we, we know quite enough yet, and there's enough debate going on among people. But look at the reaction of people and the anxiety that already exists today about things like this. I mean, just this week, just, if you just scroll your, your news feed and you just look at the headlines. Uh, uh, this week, I, I read the, the worst heat wave ever recorded in the West. You hear words like mega drought. You hear, you hear words like apocalyptic in news articles right now. You hear words like, like out of water, dead pools. You hear of things, super storms. Now, no doubt the media is scaring us so that we click, right? There's profit to be made. But people click. People are anxious. People regularly, think about this. This is in our vocabulary now. I never heard it growing up. I never said it, but it's a regular thing now. People talk about killing our planet. There's a real fear that the earth is going to die and all of us on it. And that's just in our current environment. That's where we are now. And think about the anxiety that goes on. Think about the anxiety from the wars that we hear about and the rumors of wars and the typhoons that take place and the flooding and the constancy of it. If we're all honest, if you're just reading the headlines, it makes you kind of think, what's going on? Now, if what little bit we see now Causes what we see in anxiety among people now. What will it be like when these signs are all obvious to us? We certainly understand cause for anxiety. But Jesus' disciples should not be this way. We shouldn't be that way. Now, I'm not talking about the, the classic dismiss, dismissal of climate talk. I don't care about that conversation right now, Okay. I'm not saying, well, I'm a Christian, so I don't care about those things, and I don't believe them. That's a different conversation. What I'm saying is our reaction to the realities should not be fear and anxiety and panic and distress. But Jesus gives us a different reaction. Look at verse 27. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, stand up. Lift up your heads. Because your redemption is near. Jesus tells us that when the world is falling apart, we should be comforted. That's when we should start to kind of stand up straight a little bit. Hey, it's starting to look like Jesus is coming back. Things are looking dark out there. Yeah, that's, that's causing my hope to increase. The whole point of telling us ahead of time is not that we chart the times and hang that chart in our library and keep close track of things. It's so that when times grow dark, we can recognize the signs for what they are and realize his coming is nearer than ever before. Now, we need to make a distinction between the beginning and ongoing signs and final climactic signs. Jesus told the disciples in verse 9 that at that time... It was only a beginning. Well, the beginning began. We've been in the beginning, or whatever comes right after the beginning, for a little while now. Just under 2,000 years. The first signs are ongoing throughout the time Jesus is gone. The things he describes, he does not say will ever come to an end before his second coming. So the upheaval and all of those things are all signs. So every time you look at your news feed, in one sense, you should think of Luke 21. Signs that the end is near. Signs that the, the initial time of creation, the time of Israel, Judaism, the, the fall of the temple, all those things have taken place. Now we're in the times of the Gentiles. These are all signs. They're pointers, they're reminders, they're billboards to us. The final, however, are unmistakable to the disciples. It appears to be one of those things that we will all know when we see it. But the ongoing signs armed with Jesus' teaching here are a constant reminder of the age we are in and its coming conclusion. Now, why do I say it's something that we'll know when we see? Well, look at the parable he tells in verse 29. Jesus says, then he told him a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put out their leaves, you can see for yourselves and recognize that summer is already near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. So whatever the the final climactic signs look like, Jesus says we'll be able to tell. There will be something maybe elevated about them. They'll be more constant, more strong perhaps. We will tell this is it. We're getting close. So as things increase, as things get worse, we should be thinking about those kinds of things. And he tells this simple parable that's similar to our trees here. We have deciduous trees that lose their leaves in the fall and they sprout in the spring. And he says, you know what that's like? It's the same kind of thing. What he says to us here then is he's saying that discerning disciples will recognize these things as a sign that our redemption is near. So we need, as disciples of Jesus, to be discerning When we read here that we should be alert, we should be awake, we should be on guard, one of those things is to be discerning. Think about his word and apply it to the environment we live in, to the news we read, to the conversations we hear, to the feelings you have in your heart. That's the proper response. Look, I don't know if if the season we're in in the world is the beginning of the end. I can't say that. I do know that these are dark days. These are dark days. The love of many has grown cold. People are angry. People are ready to fight. People are tribal. And their guard is up. There's no confidence in government. Society is a mess. And it's not just us. It's global. Right? I certainly don't know if the climate alarmists are on something. But here's what I know. I know Jesus said it would be like this. And if it isn't the time for his return yet, that means it's going to go on like this and it's likely to get worse. So I want to encourage you today with those words, it's likely to get worse. (laughs) Why will that encourage us? Hopefully it'll be clear by the end. But that's not a reason to despair. It's a reason to lift up our heads because our redemption is nearer now than it's ever been, he says. Confidence in this truth is the point of verses 32 and 33. Look at what he says there. Truly, I, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now, I'm going to comment on the, the phrase this generation, but just, just know this. Don't get lost in all the questions that we have and the debates that go on about what's this and what's that. Understand the main idea that he wants to say right here is that you and I should have confidence in his words. These things will take place. If you're alert, uh, uh, um, discerning. If you're paying attention. If you're alert. If you stay with me. You will recognize it. Understand me is Jesus. Not me. Travis. <laughs> <laughs> but what does he mean by this generation? You, sh- you should know. This is a-, a hotly debated phrase. Lots of questions here. Some people um, well, well, there's really only two categories. You can, you can think of it as descriptive. Is it describing the generation that will see these things? Or is it temporal? Is it describing a time period? Is he saying there's a certain generation that's alive from this date to that date, that generation? There's a couple ways to take that. If it's, if it's temporal, then Jesus might be talking about the generation of his disciples. And that's the way some people interpret it. And they understand him to say, the generation alive right now, this generation, you guys, talking to his disciples, you will see the persecutions that I'm talking about, and you will see the destruction of Jerusalem. But you have to conclude in that scenario that he does not extend that to the second coming. Or possibly it's the generation that sees the unmistakable signs. So notice the placement of the phrase is here at the end of the chapter. It's right after he talked about the signs that you'll see and he gives the parable. You you know how it works with the fig tree. When you see the leaves, then you'll know. So then he says, this generation will not pass away. So many conclude that it's the generation that sees the unmistakable signs. As soon as we see the unmistakable signs, we know we will not perish. Another generation on the earth is not going to be born and live and come before Jesus returns. If it's descriptive then it's possibly describing this generation, meaning all the peoples on the earth that oppose God. Why would you say that? Because whenever Jesus uses the phrase this generation in the Gospels, particularly in Luke, it's always pejorative. Remember, he says this generation seeks a sign. And that that was a negative statement. He's saying this generation that doesn't believe, they seek a sign. And so in one sense, the whole world is connected together through all generations, Of opposing God. Ever since the fall of man. People have been at war with God. They've been all about their own thing. Their own agenda. Their own kingdoms. And Jesus is saying. The world is not going to succeed in its mission. To overcome its fallenness. And dethrone God. This generation won't pass away. Before I come back. Perhaps it's a mixture. Probably. But. In the context, it seems most reasonable to think that he's describing the generation that sees the unmistakable signs at the end. I'll leave you to put all that together. But let's let's put these thoughts together. Put all this together. Jesus is near the end of his ministry. Jesus is departing. He's leaving the disciples. And he tells them, listen, listen, guys, listen, ladies, things are going to get bad. It's going to look like the end, but it's really just the beginning of the end. Things will be bad politically, socially, and even geographically and environmentally. And the city you love is going to the ground. And you're going to be tempted to be disoriented. You're going to be tempted to be alarmed. And you're going to be tempted to be fearful. But don't be. Instead, recognize the times. Lift up your head. Realize this means that I'm near. Recognize that there's a plan and it's going according to plan. There's a proper response for disciples. There's confidence in my word if you'll trust me. That's what Jesus is is trying to grab the attention of the disciples for. That's what he's saying to you and me. He's giving us confident comfort. Confident comfort When the world's falling apart. That's why he tells us to lift up our heads. But he says something else. Verses 34 to 36. He tells us don't get distracted. Don't get distracted. That's the second idea that he lays out for us. There's another danger. Look at what he says. Verse 34. Be on your guard. So that your minds are not dulled from carousing. Drunkenness. And worries of life. Or that day will come on you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come on all who live on the face of the earth. But be alert at all times. Praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Since Jesus' return is delayed, the disciples can get distracted. Our discernment can be dulled. There's a lot of things to think about in Luke 21, but there's only a few clear applications. So if you get lost in all the words right now, these are the three applications in the whole chapter that Jesus gives us. He tells us, recognize the the times and the signs. Recognize the times and the signs. Hopefully that's been clear. But he also says, don't be alarmed or discouraged. Don't be alarmed. Don't be discouraged. But then this last one is, be on guard. Let all of that heighten your alertness to the realities that are before you. The warning in these final verses to us is to not assume, hey, I got this. Don't worry about me. I got it. I know what I'm doing. I've got everything under control. But instead to realize that a distracted disciple won't be able to see the signs and recognize the times because you're distracted. If you don't heed the words above that Jesus gave us, you can start looking about for other things to occupy your devotion. That's what he's talking about here. Two times in two ways, Jesus exhorts us to stay awake. Verse 34, notice, be on your guard, and then notice verse 36 be alert at all times. Now when you see something repeated, what should you do? That's not a trick question. You should pay attention to it. That this is important. And he says it in another place in this chapter too. I'll leave that for you to explore on your own. When he says here in verse 34, be on your guard so that your minds are not dulled. This phrase, not dulled, is literally weighed down. So your translation might say weighed down. It's used to describe being so sleepy that you can't get your eyes to open up. Everybody knows what that's like. And it's, it's actually the same phrase that's used of the disciples when Jesus says to the disciples, stay awake so that you don't fall asleep. And they can't stay awake. They've just had a whole huge meal with wine and lamb and everything that goes with the Passover supper. They are sleepy. It's late at night and they're just like, they can't keep their eyes open. It's the same phrase. Jesus tells us, don't get sleepy. In other places, it's used to describe great burdens, the kinds that affect your whole person. It's, this is the phrase, so not dulled or weighed down, is the same phrase that, that Paul used when he wrote to the Corinthians and he said that they, they were so burdened that they despaired of their life. So as you and I are in this in-between period, in the times of the Gentiles with the signs going on, you and I, as we're waiting, we're like, Jesus, where are you? We can start to get sleepy and dulled, our eyes can kind of glaze over. Maybe you feel that way right now as I'm preaching. Let that maybe make the text come alive to you. We can be burdened by stuff. And it makes you distracted from Jesus' warning. So he tells us, be on our guard. Now, why would Jesus have to say that? Well, I, I, I hope you know. I hope you just see as you're hearing this and you're going, yeah, of course. That's me. But it's because when we get disappointed or things don't go the way we expect, when things go slower than we want, or if we're too entangled in the affairs of life, we inevitably start to look for something else. It's the equivalent of standing in line at seven stars, and because there's someone in front of you, you pull your phone out. And you're like, (laughs) Jesus isn't here yet. So we're like, well, what else is there to look at? Is there anything else to think about? Is there something else I could do? I mean, I know he's coming, but like, what do we do until then? And in this case, people start to look for things that comfort them. So he says, he says, be on guard that your minds are not dulled from carousing, drunkenness, and worries of life. Carousing is a lifestyle of going from party to party. Or if you're thinking about a moment in time, it's the description of being at a party where everyone's just just laughing and cutting up and the voices are loud. And if you're trying to talk to someone else, you can't quite get your words. You have to yell because everybody else is just, whoo, carousing. It's a life of indulging. If If it describes a lifestyle, it's a whole life of indulging. And drunkenness is obvious. Now, these two things are together. Carousing and drunkenness here, but they're also together in other passages in the Bible in Romans 13 13 They're together and in 1 Peter 4 3 they're together So if you take notes, you could jot those down. I'm going to read those for you in just a second But in those passages, it's describing our lives before becoming a Christian So jesus is saying that there's a temptation for us as we wait to get distracted and start to reach back for our old life That's a danger Romans 13, 11 says, and do this. Understand the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, Not in dissension and jealousy, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Now notice, I'm going to comment on that, but notice how he has carousing and drunkenness together, but it's in the context of of other descriptive terms, sexual immorality, debauchery, dissension, jealousy. 1 Peter 4, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because whoever su- suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for human, evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. So look, these passages show it doesn't have to be literal drunkenness. So if you read this and you go, all right, stay away, don't be carousing and drunk. So I'm always home on Friday night, and I don't drink, so we're good. <laughs> These two descriptions are stand-ins for whatever mind-numbing techniques that we grab and reach for that result in wasted living. Maybe it's just drinking too much, or, or it's, it's constant pleasure-seeking. I, I got to get the next thing. Like, what, what is the thing? What is the what is the pleasure that I can do to, to kind of numb my mind or make me feel good or just distract me? Maybe it's maybe it's endless entertainment, constant Netflix, constant Prime, constant Disney, constant Peacock. All the streaming services—you got them all. Those things can numb you. Maybe it's play, game playing or travel or it's fitness obsession or I'll say it, golf. Or any number of things that are descriptive of searching for distraction. That's what this is about. That's why these go together. Now he has another phrase, the worries of of this life. The worries of this life are legitimate things that concern everyday life. The word here for life is that basic word for bio, where we get biology. It's the common concerns of living in the world. So this is what we all have to deal with. This is work, money, house, car, school, friends, politics, kids, potholes. It's just all that stuff. All the normal things that we can't escape. You're not going to escape it. can't escape it. Those are the things in front of us. But notice what he says. Again, be on guard so that your minds are not dull from carousing, drunkenness, and worries of life, or that day will come on you unexpectedly like a trap. Certainly, this doesn't mean that we don't live as people in the world with the same or similar concerns as everybody else. But what's described is an absorption into everyday life that leads us to stop watching and living faithfully. Or we might just say, busy. I'm just busy. Where you been lately? I'm busy. I know you haven't, you, haven't, you haven't been yourself lately. You haven't been Yeah, i been busy. Busyness can dull us and numb us to the Lord's word. It's scary to realize that these are the things that make up normal living and they're the things that can choke out God. Luke eight twenty eight fourteen, that Jesus tells the parable of the seed where the word goes out and some falls on good soil, some on rocky soil, some on uh, the pathway, so on and so forth. And it's this phrase, same phrase, that says the word sprouts, but the cares of this life choke it and it dies. The normal worries of life can choke God's word and make you say, I'll get to that sometime later. Mark 4.19 calls them worldly cares wealth and the desire for other things. So here's, there's two pitfalls for us in the delay of Jesus return. We can one reach back to our old former lives, or perhaps it's the life you never had. Maybe you were really good growing up. Maybe you lived a pretty good life and you came to Christ, but as you've drifted, as you've, as you've gotten distracted, you've started to say, well, well, maybe, maybe I missed something. Uh, Maybe I should try some of that. Either way, you reach back for the life that doesn't belong to the life of a follower of Jesus. The second pitfall is that we can get preoccupied with this world's everyday life. All good things. Both or either have the potential of dulling our minds so that Jesus' coming hits us unexpectedly. Notice what he says in verse 34 at the end. He says, or that day will come upon you unexpectedly. Unexpectedly. And notice he says, on you. He doesn't raise his head now and look at all the pagans out there. He's talking to the disciples. He's talking to people who claim to be Christians, who say, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. He's talking to us. In other words, if our minds are dulled, we will miss the signs and we will be caught off guard. And in all of Jesus, Jesus tells a lot of parables about this, which must mean that there's going to be a lot of people caught off guard. It has to mean that. He wouldn't have given so many warnings about it. So question, how can we tell if we are too absorbed in everyday life? How can you tell? Well, here are some ways. The current upheaval of things can dominate your mind. Your mind is just fixed on all the things that you're anxious about or busy with. Your longings for something can be greater than your watching and praying. Perhaps if you've been a Christian for a long time, you can look back and you can say, I used to really pay attention. I used to really read the word. I used to try to get to everything. I used to have a lot of Christians present in my weekly life. I used to call people and talk about the scriptures. I don't really do that much anymore. One way to see this is that your relationship to God is affected negatively by his not giving you what you're praying for. So maybe there's a great longing in your heart. It's a care of this life. It's a good desire. But it's so important to you and it's become the center of your prayers that now over time, since God has not given you that thing, you've started to drift from him and say, well, I I don't really even know if he cares or he's listening or he's paying attention or maybe he just says no because he doesn't like me. And because of that, you start to go. Or perhaps you've actually received what you've asked for and you're so distracted by it that it crowds out or it chokes the Lord's word because you're just too busy. This is a good reason to pay attention to your schedule and ask if your life is so busy, whether you have time to pay attention to be alert by prayer for strength and to be present with the church. Friends, are you too busy? I don't know the answer to that. Parents, this is something we've got to teach our kids. We live in a world, especially in America, that says be as busy as you can at all times. Never pause. Never have silence. We need to live live by example and limit some things. Just, just say no to some good things. Good things that we just need space for. No, we're just not going to do that because we just, need to, we just need to be here today. But you also need to instruct them. Our kids are going to grow up in a world that's pulling at them and opportunities abound. And we have to help them see and weigh those things and say, okay, maybe we'll be too busy. Let's not get there. Let's guard ourselves because we're trying to follow Jesus. We're waiting for something else. Now, of course, who hasn't experienced this guilty? Everybody's guilty. This guy too. It's kind of the nature of life. But where it persists, there is a danger growing. You might lose focus where what is true of the moment is more real than what Jesus has said. You start to drift backwards in the way of life for the world and you reach for things to bide your time. Your concern about holiness will diminish while your per- permissiveness for sin will grow since the Son of Man has faded from your sight. Well, if, if you're paying attention to this passage, if we're listening, Jesus is telling us that only the alert disciple will recognize the signs And be awake at his coming. So he's telling us, don't get distracted. Now let me try to to end with just giving you some things that you can do. So what do you do if you're sitting here and you're saying, that's me? Well, here's some ideas. Verse 36 tells us, pray for strength to escape so that you'd be able to stand. Just grab that verse, verse 36, and make it your prayer. Just use those words. You don't have to invent a new prayer. Grab that prayer. Put it on your lips. Pray it to God. And just dwell there. And use it as a as a request to God. Ask God, God, show me. Will you help me see? Will you help me see? And when He does, name those things and repent from them. Here's here's some more. Take stock of your heart and your mind and retrace your heart's path from walking closely with the Lord. If If you're someone who's been with the Lord for a little while and you look back and you say, Yeah, I have, I have been distracted. Take the time to go back and figure out where did I start getting off and retrace that. Adjust in the opposite direction from the drift that you've indulged. Obviously, get the scriptures into your mind and heart. My guess is that if we're there, we've lowered our intake of what God says while increasing what's going on in the world. Swap those things out. Get yourself around others who want to be watchful and prayerful. Church, there was a man named Demas. There was a man named Demas who walked with the Lord for a little while. He traveled with the Apostle Paul. And he shows up in three letters in the New Testament at the end when Paul greets. Three times. In Colossians, he's listed among the brothers who greet you in the name of the Lord. In Philemon, he's there by Paul's side, waging the good fight, and he's greeting them. But in Second Timothy, Paul's last letter, at the end of his life, Paul says Demas has departed in love with this present world. If Demas can do that, we can do that. Every one of us. So, church, we stand before the God, only, the God of our of, of our creation, of, of, who has created us, the God of our salvation, only by the grace and blood of Jesus. But that happens by endurance, by heeding these words. So we need to stand. And that only happens if we aren't distracted. So church, stay awake and keep your heads lifted. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. And we pray that you would, you would prompt us. We pray that you would poke us and open our eyes for us. In Jesus' name, amen.